Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. Investing in real estate can be very profitable. It can also be very risky. A lot of people have lost big money over the years, especially when they've gotten involved with the wrong people. Today's guest, Jim Pfeiffer, founder of Left Field Investors, has created a networking group that provides excellent education and resources to help people avoid common pitfalls and mistakes that can cost them a lot of money. So today we have a man, another man, by the way, from the Midwest, from probably the fastest growing city, and if not the fastest growing, one of them for sure in the Midwest, Columbus, Ohio. He is the president of PK Capital Partners. He is a founder of Left Field Investors and host of the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. He's doing a lot of really, really great stuff for a lot of people. He is Jim Pfeiffer. Jim, welcome to Street Smart Success. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, you got it. And just out of curiosity, you know, I'm going to ask you, you know, a bunch of questions that have nothing to do with business. Starting with, I was looking at your profile, and even though you're in the hallowed Buckeye State uh, with a, a recent lost to Michigan, which is a very sad thing because I'm actually from Cleveland myself. But you're a duck, man. You went to Oregon. And so so where are you from originally? That's going way back. I uh, I was born in Phoenix, Arizona, but I grew up in Anchorage, Alaska. But my family has always been uh, in Columbus, Ohio. My grandparents were grew up here and, and so our, our, our family's from Ohio. I see. Who migrated down to Phoenix? My parents, uh, they they both went to Ohio State, and then when they graduated, they went off to Los Angeles, and then they made their way to uh, to Phoenix from there, and that's where I was born. I see. And were you in Phoenix all the way through high school? No, no. I was in Phoenix until uh, first grade, and then we moved up to Anchorage, uh, Alaska, and that's where I, I was up there more or less from then until through high school. I see. And now, pray tell, why do they move from Phoenix to Anchorage? Alaska. I mean, the obvious would be the weather, but you know, I'm sure it was another reason. Yeah, there. It, it, it's a funny story. Uh, my parents both quit their jobs uh, when my sister was eight and I was six, I think. And we went on a uh, we bought they bought a motorhome and we went on a three month camping trip, um, starting in Phoenix and going through Ohio, Florida, Connecticut to visit all the family members. And then we went through Montreal at the 1976 Olympics, and then we uh, ended up in. Juneau, Alaska, and uh, the guys my dad used to work for sent him an ad for a for a job in Juneau just as a joke, and uh, he ended up applying and, and got it, and we stayed there and never got our luggage, or not luggage, but our furniture or everything from our house in Arizona. We uh, It was too expensive to ship it up there, so we just uh, bought a house and lived in it with no furniture, and the only car we had was our motorhome. It was quite an adventure. So what job was this? Uh, he worked for the state in an insurance, uh, the state insurance commissioner. Are your folks still in Alaska? No, no. They, uh, we, mo- we eventually moved um, to Anchorage and then my parents have since retired. And uh, well, I guess they're back in Arizona now. Um, they live in Tucson. Okay. Interesting. That, that's why I ask these questions because you, you never know what you're going to get. That's interesting. Now, by the way, yours truly was also at those Olympics in 1976. Oh wow! Maybe we uh, maybe maybe we met each other back then. <laughs> you never know. Uh, we I was there for 
not, I'll make a very short story even shorter. Uh, you know, I went to, to overnight camp as a kid in Maine and we took a field trip, you know, to Canada because Maine obviously is on the Canadian border and we made it to uh, the Olympics. And yeah, so 1976, we were there. Uh, that's pretty neat. Well, that's cool. So, so you went to Oregon and how, how ultimately did you wend your way to the Buckeye State? Well, Without getting into too much uh, too much detail here, I started out at Ohio State and then transferred to Oregon. And uh, eventually, when I got out of college and it got a job, I worked in Philadelphia. Um, then they transferred me to Cologne, Germany, then Los Angeles, and then I got transferred to Columbus, and I've been here ever since. I see. And when was that? I got here, I think, two thousand one. You've seen that town just burgeon like crazy. You know, like I said, I'm from Cleveland. I went to University of Cincinnati. So, so as a kid, when I say kid college and right after college, I mean, I drove through Columbus, you know, dozens of times. And, you know, back then, and this was a long time ago, Columbus was a sleepy little town. It was always the state capital and had, you know, the school, Ohio State. But it wasn't until, I don't know, 20, 25 years ago that it eclipsed Cleveland and now is the biggest city. And, you know, I'm telling you all the things you already know because you're there. Yeah. I, I toured Ohio State with my son two years ago as one of the options for, you know, schools for him to attend. Uh, unfortunately, you need pretty healthily north of a four-point GPA and SATs north of 1,300. And I'm being conservative on the low end, by the way, to get into Ohio State, which is unbelievable given that when I was a kid, the two requirements were a GED and a pulse. And uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, it, that's still the requirement for the satellite campuses. But yeah, to get into main campus now is a chore. It's crazy. Yeah, well, he didn't want to go to uh, Ohio State Mansfield. I don't blame him. Yeah, and then it becomes a feeder system. But yeah, Ohio State, and, and I was, you know, I, I basically, when I saw the gym there, the main gym, and I understand there's like nine of them, but the main recreational facility, I pretty much like my jaw hit the ground. And it was like, I've never seen, I love working out. I've never seen a bigger weight room. It, it went on, it seemed like for acres, and there, there must have been a thousand treadmills. I mean, it was, and I don't even know if I'm exaggerating. I probably am, but it was the biggest facility I've ever seen. And there's just been so much money, I guess, from Les Wexner and others put into Ohio State. It's just really become quite a thing. So I know that you were in financial services, and but I'll let you tell the story. And then you wended your way into real estate, but maybe you can tell it, Jim. Sure. So out of college, I, I worked for a, a reinsurance company and, and did that for I don't know, about 11 years. And, and then I, uh, I quit that to, to become a teacher. And I taught high school finance and accounting to uh, Columbus City School students. So it was a lot of life skills. And, uh, and, and I did that for about seven years. And then I became a financial advisor. And that's when I got into real estate. I was kind of an accidental landlord. And um, as I was getting into real estate, I found that's a great way to make money. And, you know, I, I'd always, always been a mutual fund and stock investor since, you know, the 90s. And, and I thought that was the best way to make, make money. And that's why I wanted to be a financial advisor. I wanted to help other people do that. So I've always kind of been educating people at each step of my career. And I was also learning myself. And the, as a financial advisor, the more I learned about money, the more I learned that paper assets was not where I wanted to be. 
And I always prided myself on investing in the same things that my clients were. And then I found that I was investing more in real estate and less in these paper assets. And I couldn't kind of reconcile that with what I was doing with my clients. So I I eventually ended up getting out of the financial advising business and and becoming a full-time real estate investor. And initially it was active. And and then I realized that although I, I liked owning real estate, I would prefer to do it in a passive way because I wasn't a very good asset manager. I wasn't managing the property managers very well. And and I was kind of trying to be passive and active at the same time, and that doesn't work. And so then I decided to go fully passive and effectively hire asset managers to manage the uh, the assets that I'm that I'm buying into and they manage the property managers and they they take care of everything and the passive part is once I send the wire the active part is when I'm evaluating the asset and the property man or not the property manager but the syndicator sponsor and the market and all that so it's it's active until you send the wire and then and then it's passive that's kind of the the short story of uh, of my career I guess got it and so just to back up a quick second at the top and I grabbed this off your profile it says president of PK and I'm gathering that PK was the active part of what you're talking about when you were buying and rehabbing and managing properties is that correct yeah so th- there was a couple of different companies um, that I that I started that were that were investing in active real estate PK capital is one where we we got some of my former financial advising clients and and some neighbors and friends and family together and pooled capital and bought uh, nine properties in Columbus, 13 units. And we held those. Our goal was to hold them for five or 10 years. And we actually just sold the last one last month. And uh, we we basically bought them, fixed them up. And two years later, because the market is so hot right here in Columbus, we sold them all because we'd achieved our five to 10 year goal in about, I guess it was just under three years. So that, that company is about to be liquidated and removed from my my LinkedIn, but that was the uh, that was a really interesting interesting time because the, the market has just gone up so so fast that uh, holding assets just doesn't make sense, and so that's been liquidated and everyone's been given their money and their and their rewards, you know, the the income they got from it, and and so now I'm going to be fully passive because I only own. Uh, two rentals now active, actively. Everything else is completely passive. Got it. So Columbus has just really kind of turned into a, a big success story. It's grown like crazy. Is it in migration? Where and if so, like how much? If you don't have the exact numbers, that's, that's fine. Certainly wouldn't expect that. But like are a lot of people moving there? And if so, where from? That's a great question. And I unfortunately don't have a good answer. You know, I don't pay attention to the the Columbus market very much anymore because there aren't any uh, passive syndicators that I've found in Columbus that I that I want to invest with. So I, I'm really looking at other markets. I'd love to get a deal or two in Columbus because it, it's been you know so successful for me in the past. But you know I like I said I'm I'm not interested in doing active investing anymore. So I'm not sure um, where everybody's coming from. I can just tell you they're coming because. The buildings that they're they're putting up new multifamily residents all around my neighborhood. It's just growing like crazy, and uh, the people are coming from somewhere. I, I'm not sure where. It helps to have you know a big university, so when people graduate, a lot of times they they stick around. There's some there's a lot of major Fortune 500 companies here that are growing. So, I, like I said, I don't have a good answer about Columbus, but it, it, all I can say is it's growing for sure. 
honest answer. Yeah, because I mean, because <laughs> I'm just curious because it's like, you know, again, from having been from the state there, I'm like, where are people? Are, you know, I think that, you know, part of your answer is probably spot on. It's just people staying after school and just hanging there and starting companies and there's probably some technology, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's very interesting. So hands-on wasn't your thing. And and I guess my question is then, what were your first um, passive investments with syndicators? And, um, you know, how has that gone? Um, they were bad. They haven't gone well. <laughs> um, I did it wrong from the start. And that's where I've I've learned a lot. So the first the first passive investments I did, I went to a real estate guys syndication seminar, and I wanted I thought I wanted to be a, an active syndicator. I wanted to be the sponsor. And and after about the first day of the two day course, I realized nope, that's not for me. I'd rather be passive. And I had a uh, rollover four hundred one k, so an IRA that I that I put into a self directed IRA. So I had some cash from my previous employment that I felt was. Not that I thought I would lose it, but I could be risky with it because it was, you know, retirement money, which is a long ways away. And I, I knew I would keep building wealth, so I wasn't really concerned with it. Um, and so I was a little bit uh, lazy. And when I went to that seminar, I just started meeting people and, and they'd say, oh, I'm a syndicator. And I'd say, oh, I have money. Do you want it? And that's not the proper way to evaluate sponsors, it turns out. So I got into some deals. Now, there's only one that's not really performing. The rest are performing, but they're not deals that I would get into now. Uh, now that I know a lot more, so it was it was a good way to kind of get started to learn the hard way, but that I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend it. Now I have a lot more education and I have processes and I have I have ways of analyzing deals and sponsors so that that I get the deals that I want and I get I get good deals. But the first ones, you know, they're not performing like I had hoped or how I had been uh, led to believe they would. Uh, just a, a small detail doesn't matter other than I'm just curious, what seminar did you go to? Secrets of Successful Syndication. It was a great seminar. Um, I'm glad I went. I met a lot of quality people there. I wasn't investing in asset classes that would produce cash flow. It was more, you know, some development stuff and some things that may or may not happen. And and so it was just, not that they're bad. One of them, one of them is not performing well for sure. But the rest are just deals that I wouldn't do now because they're not providing cash flow. They're more long term and they may pay out. It's just not what I would would do now, which is why I say that that I, I don't regret it, but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't do it again. Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the PL. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and therefore can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, vice president, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305 467 5909. You'll be glad you did. So when you say they're, they're not providing cash flow, was the business plan to generate cash? Because he, here's why I wanted to talk to you, in addition to the fact I just am always looking for guests, is because I've been down the same path as you in many respects and am currently on the path. So we could clearly compare notes in this podcast and off. 
so I do have a frame of reference for what you're talking about. I as well am in, in like have been in certain syndications with no cash flow and to be to be truthful about it and risk being completely embarrassed. I kind of didn't even really know what I was getting into. Like I just didn't have any sophistication and I'm not claiming that I do now, but I have more than I did. And But for example, I invested in some cell tower funds because it's one of my younger brother's best friends in Cleveland. And uh, you know, I just didn't know what the hell I was doing. As it turns out, it's doing extremely well. Imagine cell towers, right? It's not like there's a reduction in, in demand for uh, cellular technology. But so my question is, which I'm taking about a thousand hours to ask, <laughs> is did you know going in that, that that wasn't the business plan or was there, yes, pro forma cash flow and they're just not hitting their numbers? Um, I would say more, again, embarrassingly, that I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't really look at the pro formas. I met the people and thought, hey, these guys are at a, uh, at a seminar. They must know what they're doing. And that's not to say that they they don't. It's just the deals aren't what I would would do now. So I didn't really look through the pro formas very much. I thought there would be cash flow, but again, I didn't even I hadn't even figured out yet that cash flow is what I wanted because I wasn't uh, at the time I I wasn't a full time passive investor. I had my W two, so cash flow wasn't as important to me as it is now. Those investments were just you know one was a resort property, not even in the U S. There was you know the coffee farm in in Panama and and just just you know kind of off the wall interesting things that that aren't really producing cash flow how I thought they would. You know, some of them are five years until until they produce. One was a, a mobile home park and that that's not doing well because I, I picked the wrong operator and that was supposed to have cash flow. So it just was I didn't know what I was doing and I was just throwing money around and it, it was not the right way to do it. Um, but it, it's resulted in where I am now, right? I learned the lessons. I understand now what I did wrong. I haven't lost any money. I just haven't made as much as I had expected. You know what? Here's what I love about you, Jim. You are an honest man. You would admit that. And I would too. I mean, I this look, this is your podcast. It's not mine, but I, I have made mistakes that are just, I, I can't even believe I made blah, blah, blah. But again, uh, offline, if you're interested, not now. So anyway, I, I appreciate that. So yeah, I well, get, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say that the mistakes are, are what, uh, what help you learn, right? And so part of what I do now with the with left field investors and, and my community is I share my mistakes with, with everybody so that they don't make them, right? And other people do the same for me. They share their mistakes. And so that gives me kind of a roadmap. Like there's certain things that I do now or don't do because of what I've learned from people in my community or mistakes I've made on my own. So I think sharing your mistakes, especially in in kind of a team sport that the passive investing is everyone's trying to help everybody. That's one of the things I really like. It's very collaborative. And so sharing my mistakes or you sharing your mistakes just means somebody else might not make those mistakes. And that's why, you know, I'm not embarrassed about it. I mean, I kind of am because I, I didn't know what I was doing, but you know, you just got to take action. And if you can take action with a little bit more information than you and I had to start, you know, people are just going to be that much better off. So podcasts like mine and yours, that's the point of it, right? To help people build wealth for themselves and, and kind of, it's a call, you know, we call it shortcuts in our group. How do I do a shortcut that I can shortcut somebody else's mistake and have success? And that's kind of what we're building at. Yeah, it's absolutely ingenious. I could have used left field investors back in the day and I, I, I still can actually. 
I went to the site and I didn't see any 2022 events on there yet, but I'm sure you are working on it or I didn't interact with the site properly. And that's also possible, but yeah, we're working on it. <laughs> <all right. laughs> okay. So, so tell the audience, tell me about left field investors. I mean, I think I know what it is, but you tell it because it seems like it's just fantastic. Yeah. It's basically at its core, a networking and education group. So it started, you know, in March, 2020, is when we were going to have our first in-person meeting, Columbus, Ohio, going to be 12 people having dinner. And it was March 18th. And if you remember, that's when uh, the whole world shut down, including Ohio. So we, we didn't have our meeting and we haven't had an in-person meeting yet. Uh, so we switched to Zoom and that opened up the world for us. It's really one of the only good things that came out of this pandemic is we were able to grow and we were able to get syndicators, sponsors, other interesting people to jump on a Zoom call with us where if we were meeting in person, we went, never would have grown. We never would have had quality speakers coming. And so it just kind of grew organically. We tried really hard to keep it small because we wanted it to be a mastermind. But then we found out that so many people were craving this information that we, we decided we needed to you know get a brand, a website, and started a podcast. And basically what we do now is we have monthly meetings that are open to anybody. Uh, they're Zoom still. We're, we're thinking about trying to do it hybrid so because we have a lot of people in, in Columbus, so we can do a kind of a a Zoom and in-person meeting, hopefully in 2022 at some point. But basically, we have monthly meetings. You know, our website has a bunch of information, lists of sponsors that we're familiar with, and uh, blog posts, and you know, our schedule of events, and, and some other some other things. Then there then there's a um, a membership group we call the the infielders, and that's where you know we found that people were wanting to interact more, and we started developing some tools. We have a deal analyzer. Uh, that, that comes with the infielder group. We have some sponsor um, screener tools. We have a portfolio tracker and, and just some other, other tools and a forum, which is really popular. And we're just trying to connect people because what I found is this community, I thought I was going to be giving to it. And I thought I was going to be educating people and telling them all about passive investing. And what I've learned is I've learned so much more than I've taught. And that's the power of a community. I am a much better investor now than I was two years ago when the group started. And our group has just grown. You know, we've, we've grown to uh, a much larger group, both in the infield and for the, for the regular uh, left field investor group. And we're trying, you know, it's a really quality group. Again, I'm biased because it's my group, but what I recommend that anybody who's interested in passive investing in, in real estate is find a community. It doesn't have to be left field investors, but you're welcome to try us out. If we don't fit, go find another one. Because if you have a community, a network, then you can become a good investor because you're going to learn from them. They're going to share with you who the best sponsors are, what deals to get into. And you're just going to be able to talk to people and understand, hey, this is what they're doing. And you can you can learn, so you can skip some of the steps that we did, right? Some of the mistakes. That's the shortcut. Join a community. I, I can't recommend it enough. Fantastic. How many people roughly are involved? Um, in left field investors overall, we're, we're about 550. Wow. Um, you know, we had 40 this time last year. So we've, we've grown uh, quite significantly from, you know, our own podcasts and d being guests on other podcasts. And, you know, we're not trying to just grow for fun, for growth sake, but the more people that we get that fit our kind of, uh, fit in with our group, it's just quality people. We have people that haven't gotten in a deal yet and we have people that are in a hundred deals. So we have a lot of experienced people. And if you're in the infield, you know, they're posting on the forum and, and posting about deals, about sponsors, about tax strategies, about asset classes. And that's that's where you really you really start learning and, and you find out that it's a quality group. It's not the only quality group. There's a lot of different 
um, groups. I don't know that there's any exactly like ours, and, and we're trying to be unique, but there's plenty of groups that, that, that can, you can get the same type of experience from. And I, as I said, I think you just got to find one that fits, that fits you. Wow. Um, roughly, what is, do you have like a standard format for the meetings and how long are they? Yeah, so they're the fourth Monday of every month. Um, although sometimes like this month, it's the, I think we're doing the third Tuesday or something in January, uh, but generally it's the fourth Monday of every month and they last about an hour and we usually have a speaker. So I, I might talk for five minutes and then I'll pass it over to the speaker. And then usually the speaker goes 45 minutes or so. And then we try for the last 10 minutes and this is where it runs over, right? I try to keep it at an hour for the formal stuff. And then we're really trying to do a better job of networking because I end up talking to a lot of people because people schedule calls on the website to, to chat with me and I'm happy to do that. Um, but they don't get to interact with each other very much. And so we do uh, Zoom networking, which is not the best type of networking, but it's a type where we kind of split up into rooms and you're if you want to do this, you're, there might be five or six people and everyone just kind of hangs out and chats. And we have a lot of ideas in 2022 about how we're going to improve the networking. But our meetings are generally, they start at 7 p.m. Eastern, the fourth Monday of every month, and they last about an hour. And it'll go longer if you want to do the networking part of it. You know, I, uh, I've made a promise to myself. I don't know about promise is kind of a strong word, but, but I, I've told myself that any of the investments I make, I want one of the qualifications is I want to talk to somebody that has already invested with them that could say, Hey, like Jim, Jim Pfeiffer tells me, yes, I invested with Bob Jones. I've done four deals with them over the last three years and it's been great. The communication's been great. Bob Jones is a great guy. There's integrity, you know, blah, blah, whatever the heck it is. And I've done that on an, um, some investments for sure. But others, you know, I've just gone on gut feel. I've met, frankly, people on this podcast that I've invested with and uh, they're, they're going OK, that are going well. But to tell you the truth, I, I think as a, as a rule, I'd be better off having, you know, third party verification, you know, just because I mean, period. So what you're doing and, you know, that net networking thing is invaluable, you know, to people like you, you and me. And so I think it's fantastic. Do you have, so to maybe tell me a little bit about your process in terms of how you do vet operators and, you know, what you're looking for and what you stay away from and how do you find them and all that? Yeah, well, I think you nailed it on how to find them. And I'll, I'll start from where, you know, the first thing I did was I went to a seminar and just threw money at whoever was around. Not a good idea. My next plan was I would listen to podcasts. And anytime I heard a syndicator on there, I would contact them. I searched Google and, and I, I just started contacting sponsors. And that was a much better way to do it. Uh, but the best way is to use your community, to use your network. And now, almost exclusively, I will only invest with a new sponsor if they are referred to me by somebody that I already know, like, and trust that has invested with them already, like you said. Because the, these deals are so illiquid and so long-term that you're not going to know whether it was a good deal until it's done five years, 10 years later, right? So you got to find someone who's already invested with them and you know that has already had some, some success. doesn't mean they have to go full cycle, but they've been with them a year or two. Um, I just think that's the only way to really vet a sponsor and know that you know you're probably on the right track. The other thing I do is I check their communication skills because 
again, they're, it's so illiquid, so long-term, you got to have someone who's going to communicate with you. And I want to make sure that they're going to communicate with me before I send them a wire, because if they don't do it before, they're certainly not going to do it after. So one of the things I do is we have a deal analyzer, as I mentioned, and left field investors. So I'll, I'll throw in all the information from the, from the deal and that there's probably 30 metrics and it's an Excel spreadsheet and it turns green if, if it fits our, our parameters, turns red if it doesn't. And red doesn't mean don't invest, it means ask a question. So I'll get a list of all the things that have turned red and I'll send that in an email to the sponsor. And then I'm looking for two things from this sponsor. I'm looking for a response within 24 hours or you know a reason why they didn't uh, because I want to know that they're going to communicate efficiently with me. And then I also want to see the quality of their response. I don't want someone to say, hey, go watch the webinar. I've watched the webinar. I want to know that you know the deal and you need to show me that by answering my questions. And then because I'm high maintenance when I first get to know a sponsor, they'll send me their responses and I will almost immediately send back some more questions. Even if they've answered everything and I don't have any questions, I'm going to ask, ask some more questions because I want to see, are they going to get annoyed because I asked additional questions? And the type of sponsor I'm looking for is the one who either answers that next email or like somebody did, picks up the phone and says, hey, you seem to want more information on this deal. Let's talk it through. I don't want someone who's just going to get annoyed with me because I ask questions. If they do, that's fine. I'm not the investor for them and I'll move on. There's thousands of sponsors. I don't need to invest with someone that's just going to disappoint me, right? So I'm trying to figure that out up front. So the two things for me are checking their communication and being referred by somebody else. Now, there are times when somebody isn't referred and I just find them in a different way. I might invest with them, but it's going to be a much slower process. And that's one of the other things is when you, especially new people, when you first talk to a sponsor, they might not even pressure you, but because they've spent an hour talking to you, you might feel pressure to invest in their next deal. Um, what I tell them out of the gates is I said, look, it's going to probably take me six months or a year of reviewing all the deals that you have in that time frame before I feel comfortable. And if that upsets them, again, I'm moving on. There's plenty of other fish in the sea. Mostly they say, hey, that makes total sense. Yeah. Let, you know, hopefully in six months or a year, we'll know each other better and then we can do business. So that, that's kind of how I approach it. Very interesting. Boy, I can resonate with every uh, letter of what you just said. I could say syllable, but every letter, every word, because <laughs> I've been there and am there right now. Another thing I learned recently, and I'm just kicking myself, is the 10,000 hour rule. You know, have you heard, you know, are you familiar with that? Yeah, yeah, from Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, and and I I don't agree with it. I think it's more like um, literally thirty thousand hours because ten thousand hours is it, basically you work two thousand hours a year, approximately. You know, some people work a little less, some people little work a little bit more, but that's an average of forty hours a week, fifty uh, fifty weeks a year, right? So ten thousand hours basically means five years. Well, you know, my business is is advertising, and if I if I look back at what I knew at five years. At my age now, here's what I knew after five years of advertising: nothing. Yeah. Okay. And and you know what I knew at ten years compared to what I know now: nothing. So that's another thing. And I keep and I keep abandoning you know this in just because I get you know I fall in love with somebody or I fall in love with the pro forma or the story or this or that. But um, I'm trying to discipline myself to look for people that have done it for years and years and years that have a sole focus, whether it be multifamily, ideally in one market, by the way. And, it, and it's hard to find. And so I'm just trying to create 
and I don't have it. I don't have a, a nailed down formula like you've brilliantly created. I'm still doing it somewhat seat of the pants. I know what I'm looking for, but it's not, it's not formalized. Let's just put it that way. So I, I'm, I'm kind of looking for all of those things because to your point, it's illiquid and there's risk, et cetera. Do you, Jim, have a predisposition to asset classes or markets or class stratification, A, B, or C class within an asset class? Or, or are you just pretty much, hey, whoever, whatever the story is and whatever you get introduced to, if the sponsor's got a track record, you're open? Yeah, I, I do. I like diversification. So I'm in multiple asset classes. I like to diversify by asset class. I'm with multiple sponsors because I like to diversify by sponsor, by market. You know, I'm in different markets because of that. And then, you know, within the within the asset classes, I might do some A, B, and C, um, some with long-term debt, some with short-term debt. You know, I try to diversify by as many categories as I can. Um, but, you know, I'm also guilty of chasing the shiny object, the, the new stuff, and I, I try not to. And one of the uh, one of the breaks I put on myself that I that I learned from a another uh, one of our, our members, David Shirky, he he says never he never invests with a, a sponsor a second time until at least a year has passed. And I don't always do that, but I'm trying to do that now too. It just kind of slows me down because there's there's no hurry, right? These sponsors are going to be around um, if they're successful. Uh, so once you meet somebody new, you don't have to jump into three or four deals with them. You can wait a while. But um, for me, I, I kind of, I don't have a favorite asset class. I'm in a lot of multifamily because that's what's, you know, most common, but I'm in self-storage. I'm in mobile homes, you know, there, there's a lot of different things. I mean, ATMs as well, uh, some triple net industrial, triple net commercial. So I don't know that I have a favorite. Um, I just like to be diversified. So so that I think that adds some protection. Now, I'm not going to, you know, go in with sponsors I don't know or asset classes I've never heard of just for the diversification. But if I get comfortable with the sponsor and the asset class in the market, then um, then I'll then I'll go in. And, and I also like the different markets. I don't want to, you know, everyone's in, Dallas and Houston and Atlanta and, and Jacksonville. So I, I like other markets too. I like to be in Boise or Colorado Springs or, you know, there's a couple deals in Cleveland. Um, you know, I'd love to get in a deal in Columbus. So it's just, it's about kind of spreading it out. So you're, you're well diversified is key to me. So are you telling me you've seen a deal in Cleveland where your Excel sheet did not turn all red? <laughs> It, it turned, there was some red in it. Absolutely, there was some red in it. But the deal there is it's with a sponsor that I have a lot of confidence in, and he's got a track record there, and he's he's had success there. So that's why I'm there. I wouldn't be there with just any sponsor. I'm not, I'm not out there looking for Cleveland deals. I'm with a sponsor that I like, and he has some deals in Cleveland, and so I pick and choose which ones I, I jump in with him on. Yeah, I was just kidding, obviously. <laughs> I, I was being self-deprecating since I'm from there. But uh, look, Northeast Ohio has three and a half million people in it. Uh, that's a hell of a lot of people. And some, you know, and a lot of them are renters. I literally said no on a deal in Cleveland because, well, the reason I said no is I'm just fatigued at looking in deals and I'm, I just got lazy and it's, I, I just, whatever. And there, there's a couple other small reasons. The deal would have been fine, but uh, the reason I, I got it drawn into it is because it's a friend of my brother's. And, you know, it's so I, at least I know the guy. Is not at the end of the day, 
to your point earlier, the guy's not going to stop returning my calls. He's he's not going to not email me back. He's not going to screw me. I know a lot about his background from my brother, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But so in terms of timeline, so you you were in a, uh, you know a financial advisor. You were doing stuff on your own. Your first you know passive were not successful because you know you didn't do a lot of due diligence, which is you know an understatement, which I've been guilty of because at that point you had a full-time gig, whatever. But when did you start, I guess, when did you start on this newest leg of passive investing where you really started doing it right? Um, I would say that would be probably middle of 2019 is when I really started figuring things out. And then um, through 2020, I kind of had an idea, but I was still making some mistakes because I was well, I was I was investing for uh, tax reasons because I sold all my active investments. So I was doing what my accountant calls a lazy 1031, which is um, using syndication investing and the cost segregation bonus depreciation they do to offset my gains from my active uh, sales. And so I was basically just investing with uh, syndicators who did a really good job at cost segregation. But that's also the time when I when I quit my W-2, so I needed cash flow. So I was kind of having a conflict there. But once I figured that out, uh, I really started rolling in 2020. And, um, you know, like I said, this community that that I started, it's what's made me a better investor. I'm so much better now than I was two years ago or even a year ago because I've learned these little tricks like David Shirky says, you know, don't invest in the same guy for, for a year or so before you start investing in the second deal. Or, you know, just recently I came upon what you what you recommended, which is don't invest with a new syndicator unless they're recommended by somebody you know, like, and trust, right? So now I'm just kind of stacking all these things I've learned so that I'm I'm so much better now than, than I was before. And, you know, to your point on the 10,000 hours, you know, I, I know that in a year or two, I'll have a few more things stacked together that I've learned and, and that I've improved on. So I, I'm not sure I'll ever get there to where I'm... Uh, you know, the perfect investor, but I'm certainly learning and I'm certainly growing and, and I expect to keep doing that. It is absolutely uncanny how parallel our stories are, not not in terms of just the stories themselves, but a timeline. Because I started doing this. I, I have been involved with one syndicator for 20 years, but it was like, that was introduced from one of my best friends 20 years ago. It's a, sin- a multifamily guy in San Francisco. They are at this point over 20,000 units. So they are really, really big. But it was like owning a stock that I haven't, that I just never looked at. And I never paid attention because like you, I had another, it wasn't, wasn't my primary source of income, blah, blah, blah. But my point is, it really doesn't, that experience doesn't really count as, as a lot of like experience because I just never even really paid attention. So I started in, to get serious mid 2009. And I also, it wasn't the intent, but I also ended up, I ended up selling a, a duplex I used to live in and the city and, and I as well have, you know, done a lot of investing this year, including ATMs. And I did the ATMs partially for this reason too, is to offset that income because I did not do a 1031. And that's a whole other story. But it's just amazing how parallel our stories are. And I'm probably boring the tears out of our audience. But anyway, uh, <laughs> be that as it may. Well, how would one get a hold of you? How would one get involved with Left Field and, um, you know, all that good stuff? Yeah. So if you're interested, uh, you could do a couple of things. You can go to 
www.leftfieldinvestors.com. And if you want to get on our newsletter, you can click the subscribe button on the top right. Also in the top right is a uh, passive investing masterclass, which takes you through all the way from what is a syndication all the way through how do you analyze a sponsor, how do you analyze a deal. So there's a video there you can check out. If you'd like to contact me, you can uh, email me at jim at leftfieldinvestors.com or on the website, you can book a call with me as well. I'm, I'm always happy to talk to talk to people. Got it. Jim, this has been just fantastic. I, I really, really appreciate it and uh, look forward to being in, in touch with you uh, after the show. Great. Well, thanks for having me on. I enjoyed it. Talk to you soon. 